for you, let's do an audio test. Name five things every home cook should know how to make. Oh, very good. I would say probably uh, a traditional pot roast, a proper steak without having to constantly temp check it, a French omelet. We've all heard that one, but I, I still am a stickler for it. And a mayonnaise. Oh boy, there's so many. It's hard to pick all of them. I'm trying to think of a sauce that has a lot of knife work. I guess like a, a purely handmade salsa and truly handmade. I mean, no, no blenders, no nothing, like all the ingredients done by hand. Love it. You sound perfect. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that, This episode is brought to you by our friends at Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's is an all-American family-owned and operated company founded in 1955 and headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. They are the number one potato roll in America, and as I like to say, they can make almost any burger and hot dog taste better. Oh, bold statement, Chicago boy. (laughs) Yes, sir, Ian. It is a bold statement, and I stand behind it. I always love a good Chicago dog, but I got to tell you, that Martin's long roll lately, it really, like grips the hot dog. I love it. There's nothing else. No, you have to use no, it. I actually think my kids are eating it right now for dinner, to tell you the truth. Actually, same. In addition to their famous potato rolls, Martin's also makes sesame-seeded Big Marty's rolls, hoagie rolls, 100% whole wheat potato bread, different swirl breads like cinnamon raisin, maple brown sugar, et cetera, et cetera. I sense the little emphasis on, I'm going to try it, the Big Marty's rolls. You did sense a little. What's that all about? <laughs> there was a little emphasis there, Ian. And we have a special bonus episode coming up next week. And I am creating a special burger for the Martins team on a Big Marty roll. That's all I'm getting? That's all you're getting, man. A Stay special tuned. special burger? Testing, you literally haven't told me anything about testing, this. I want to know what it is. Testing tonight. It's going to be a little spicy. We're going to have some pickles on there from our other partners at Wickles Pickles. Some nice collab there. Stay tuned. It's coming next week. Okay. And Martin's encompasses more than baking the best bread and providing good American jobs. They also believe in giving back to their community and the world around them. Through volunteering time and donating resources, they support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after-school programs, disaster relief, and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need both close to their baking facilities and abroad. To learn more about Martin's and check out some great recipes, go to potatorolls.com and follow them on social media at Potato Rolls. Martin's, we We thank thank you. you. Man, talk about nailing it. This episode is brought to you by our friends at One Hope Wine. One Hope is a Napa Valley winery built on hope and rooted in purpose. Every bottle of their award-winning wine supports a meaningful cause. One of the many reasons why we love them. One Hope's commitment to high-quality wine is as important as their commitment to the causes they support. Through the sale of every bottle, One Hope has donated over $8 million to causes around the world. And bonus, they have an awesome winemaker, Mari, who does these super cool pairings every other week. On our Beyond the Drink episodes. Hopefully you've listened to her. True. You've met her. Story, yeah. She's awesome. I love it. We had a good one last week. She was pairing Minit Chohan's Indian Spice Trail Mix. She paired it with a Zinfandel. It was pretty cool. She gave us like the history of the grape. It was 
I'm always like in awe whenever I talk to her. It's also cool. I saw your social post where it was like the picture of the snack and the wine. And I was like, oh, got you uh, hungry for some snacking. One Hope also believes that you shouldn't have to sacrifice your wallet to enjoy quality award-winning wines. Their popular Vintner collection begins at $25. It's super affordable and it gets delivered to your door. To learn more about One Hope Wine, the winery, and to apply to become a winery member, go to onehopewine.com. Follow them on Instagram at One Hope and on Facebook at One Hope Wine. One hope. We thank you. We thank you. One more thing. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. Enjoy this week's episode. All right. Today's guest is a chef and best-selling cookbook author. He grew up in Los Angeles and at age 18 moved to Austin, Texas, where he started his professional career at one of the most prominent restaurants, Uchiko. At age 22, he started creating YouTube videos about food, and by age 25, he was self-employed and definitely making his mark on the culinary world. When he announced the release of his book, An Unapologetic Cookbook, it became the number one bestseller of all books on Amazon in less than three hours. This professionally trained chef blends education with humor, engaging audiences across multiple platforms. He's amassed quite a large following on YouTube, TikTok, and other social media platforms. And if you don't already, I highly encourage you to follow and watch his content. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a man who in one single Instagram post of surprising his mom made me a fan for life. Chef Joshua Weissman. Dude, let me explain that post that I just mentioned kind of for our listeners. I'm just going to shorten it up a little bit. You wrote, anyone who has seen someone in their family struggle with anything knows what this means. I wasn't an easy kid to raise. Money was an issue. I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to cook and was very harsh about it. My mom always nurtured my passions, no matter the cost, even when we were struggling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You surprised her with a car. Describe how that moment felt. Man, that's a big that's a big question. I mean, it's a bucket list item that I've had for a long time. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, well, for one, I'm very gifted to have super supportive parents. And I, you know, throughout working in restaurants, especially in restaurants, you start to discover that's not very common to have great parents. And so I discovered pretty quickly how lucky I was to have great parents. And so from that moment, I was like, I don't know what or how, but I have to do something to show them my gratitude. And you know, my mom loves nice cars and stuff like that. And I was like, I'll get her a car one day, one of these days, shaking my fist in the air. And yeah, I mean, it was a pretty surreal moment. Honestly, she was actually more surprised than I anticipated. It was very emotional, but it felt like, I think out of all the things that I've done, it felt like I really did something good then more so than any other time. A lot of people have come up to me and say great things and it makes me feel great. And it definitely con- consistently resolidifies what I do, but I don't think anything could compare to that moment. That's amazing. I've watched that video over and over. Truly, it's it was awesome. I appreciate that. I have as well, probably a thousand times. <laughs> so, so good. I go back and look at it from time to time. It's a Wait, good one. So I have to ask, so like, why weren't you an easy kid to raise? So, well, okay. So I grew up Technically, I grew up in LA or Tarzana area. And I don't know, I guess bit of a, uh, not like a rocky childhood, but you know, I, I like to eat. So I was kind of a big kid. And so with that came people poking fun at me, whatever. I don't really have any like harsh feelings about that back then. You know, you're a kid, you get made fun of. Everybody gets made fun of when they're in middle school. Let's be honest, right? Or sorry, elementary and middle school, high school, maybe it gets a little better, kind of. And so I had a tendency to act out. It was like my way of catharsis. And I was never, the one thing I never did was 
backlash with my parents. I was always very respectful with them. But they had to deal with a lot of bullshit of like, Josh is in the principal's office again. Josh is in principal's office again. I didn't listen to my teachers. I never did my homework. My mom and my, my both my parents were like, they wanted to be supportive, but they're like, Josh, you kind of like need to be able to read. Can you just do the damn work? And I was very resistant. And as soon as I realized that I was good at something else, I was, which was cooking, I was like, done with school. I was like, I'm done. I'm not paying attention. If there's a movie, that's the best you'll get out of me. And so it was just very stressful. I mean, imagine being parents that want to support your kid, but you don't agree and you're trying to balance that. And that's the life of a parent, I suppose. But it was constantly a battle with me and I never agreed with anything they wanted. My mom always wanted me to go to college and I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I refuse. And it was only till I got older how much that probably hurt her. And she never really voiced that to me, which out of love, right? She's like, you know what? She's got to do what he's got to do. If it hurts, it is what it is. And so I think that my constant rebellion, my constant like getting in fights in class and all that stupid bullshit was wearing on them, but they stood strong through it. So you started cooking pretty young, no? Yeah. Yeah. I started cooking when I was about four. It was like a regular thing because my mom, so my, I come from a long line of family cooks. My family loves to cook. They go out of their way to cook. It's the kind of thing where like, Grandma shows up, but she like brings like a three-tier casserole and like a roast beef. And you're like, can we just like play Scrabble and go home? Jesus. You have siblings or no? I have a brother. Yeah, I have a brother. But yeah, mostly close family, like aunts, lots of aunts and uncles, cousins, all of us. I don't think I know any of my family that does not cook. Thanksgiving is like the bloodbath of the century. There's always too much food. It's kind of almost grotesque. It's like, should we even, is it even legal to have this much? And so, yeah, so we just come from a long line of cooks. And my, my mom was like, she wanted to bring me in the kitchen. I think it was more of like a fun bonding thing for her. And I took a liking to it pretty immediately. And, you know, hard to say if I was good at it at four, but I think I had this, it was like the one thing that I could do where I was like, there's no, nobody can tell me no here. And kind of just fuck around with this. I can like squeeze shit and make it pop, but like at school, right. I can't. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you, what was the first thing you ever cooked? Do you remember that? Yeah, first thing that my mom taught me was, according to her, was scrambled eggs, which I'm sure looking back now, if I were to look at what I made, I've totally fucked that <laughs> scrambled egg. Am I allowed? To, yeah, yes, I'm you sorry. can. I hit uh, explicit uh, when I publish these on every one just because I have a mouth. To, you never know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you worked exactly. in the industry. That's how it is. It's emblazoned <laughs> in your brain. But yeah, I, I mean, looking back, like the rubbery ass, that was just sitting in the pan for way longer than it, to the point where it's like no longer an emulsion. It's just kind of flopping <laughs> around in the pan. Okay. So I'm guessing like every holiday and special occasion, like you mentioned, Thanksgiving revolved around food, but give me a couple like standout dishes, like a couple standouts you always looked forward to from certain family members. We have this one dish in our family. It's like this goat cheese like layered goat cheese, pesto, sun-dried tomato-y dip that you eat with crackers. And it's pretty basic, but pretty delicious. And every holiday, it's like, all right, who's making it? You making it? You making it? And every, t- and every time it's like that, that, there's just one or two family members that you're like, yeah. not you. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, it's let's skip it. We have, <laughs> we have that family member. We're like, yeah, you just can stick to the other thing. And they know it's okay. It's okay to know your place. But no, so uh, yeah, we definitely do. I would say my my cousin Jenny is a superior baker. Very good. Shockingly good. So really anytime she made anything, her pies are incredible. The way that she makes the crust is like one of the most delicate crusts I've ever eaten. The kind that like breaks and instantaneously melts somehow. You know that it's like 80% fat, but who cares? It's good. So so definitely any of her baked goods. I, I've never been 
a huge, what are the Mexican wedding cookies? Uh, the one like little snowball looking things. God, the ones that she makes are good. I'm like, my mouth is watering thinking about it. So that's one. And then really my mom makes these incredible mashed potatoes. Really everything. I mean, they're like, like you said, like they're basic, but it's about the technique. And I think that's why I'm so technique forward because my family is, it's not always just been about like a customized recipe and more so they find a recipe that they really love and they pimp it out and they really sort of focus and hone in on like, what's the best ratio of butter to milk to cream? Do we mix all dairies? Does it have a different mouthfeel? Like, should we go smoother? Should we go chunkier? Not too heavy on the pepper, more heavy on the salt. Like, and I think that's what I loved about their approach on that. That's cool. So you mentioned like being bullied at a young age, which obviously isn't you say many kids are in elementary school, whatever, but not easy for anyone, of course. Do you think that like was an impetus at all of giving you a drive to succeed? A hundred percent. Yeah. One hundred percent. Yeah. Because I, I lost a bunch of weight. I lost like a hundred pounds when I was like 16. And I think that was like a catalyst for me to realize like, oh, like input output, like work equals output. Like if you want something, you can actually work for it and obtain it. Wow, that's exciting. And being an only child, that's a pretty big realization where you're like, because as an only child, you're like, oh, well, I want everything. And then you, once you finally make that connection and you understand what real hard work feels like, you can kind of begin to associate that with other life things. Was cooking an escape like when you were young at all? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Cooking, I think, was a combination of like, it's emotionally just settling, you know, it's very cathartic to just get in the kitchen, start cooking something. So yeah, I have a long day. My wife's like, let's order in. You probably don't want to cook. I was like, no, I actually do want to cook. Like, yeah, no, I mean, the only downside is when you get to the dishes and you're like, yeah. oh, now I feel bad. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. You moved after high school. You didn't go to college. Did you consider college or did you know? You know, I've, since I was like very young, I've been very anti-establishment, anti-bureaucracy and not for any other reason that it just made me feel weird. Like, I don't know why, I, I don't even know if today I can necessarily associate it with a thought other than it just didn't agree with my natural order of thought process. I don't know, like I can, I've worked for numerous chefs and, and felt respect, respectful, but I think it was because it was something that I enjoyed. So that was cool. But like, I don't know, just answering to people in a certain way and like having to, the sort of intricacies of society. I was just like, this is weird as fuck, guys. Can we just like not be depressed and just have a good time? I was like, we're all going to die. Like, let's just do something fun. How does that sound? And I, I people didn't get that. And so yeah. in culinary school, didn't like you were like, nah, I'll learn myself. I considered culinary school. I was more concerned about the cost associated with it for my parents. And I mean, they could have paid for it, but I just felt bad. And the other thing was when I, I actually went to, I don't even know if I should say, I went, I won't say it, but like I went to a very highly esteemed cooking school, culinary school, however, whichever one you think it is, sure. But I went there, traveled way out to go there and not to, just to look and feel it out and see what it was like. And I went and, and joined in on a class and sat down and I was like, I already know all this fucking shit. Why are they, why would I waste my parents' money to do this? Why don't I just go work in restaurants? And so, yeah. Interesting. I also visited that school, which I wound up going to. But when I visited the school, I ran into a student there. And you probably appreciate this. He pulled me aside. He's like, don't come here. <laughs> He's like, just buy the fucking books, dude. He's like, it's all in there. You'll learn it. And in my mind, I was like, oh, shit. I still wound up going and I loved it. But that's beside the point. <laughs> and for the record, if there is anyone listening that is going to go to culinary school or wants to go to culinary school, like if your parents are paying for it and they're fine with it, do it. Like they'll benefit. But like, I will say that, and I get questions. I mean, man, I can't even begin to count the number of kids that, that DM me, email me any way they can try to get a hold of me that ask the same exact question. 
should they go to culinary school? And it's such a touchy subject. If look, you don't have to, you don't. I've worked with such talented chefs that haven't gone, but if you want to go, go, yeah. it's not going to hurt you. Or if you want to be like me and still be paying back culinary school 20 years later, like, well, <laughs> all right. So walk us through some of the kitchen. So you moved to Austin. I'm curious why Austin, but also I'm curious to have you walk us through some of the kitchens that you worked in. Like I know about Uchiko, but I'm curious to hear about any others you want to share. Cause I know you kind of bopped around a little, but Uchiko is pretty prominent, like part of your career, I guess. Yeah. hundred percent. So I went to Austin because, well, I just, I know that everyone loves the Houston food scene and it gets a lot of attention and people are like, oh, it's the most diverse, yada, yada, yada. It is the most diverse. It's also one of the most difficult to find consistent restaurants that are consistently good. There are lots of restaurants that make great food and they're about a 30% accuracy on their quality. A lot of them, at least in my experience. And I felt like I wanted to be somewhere where there was a higher concentration, albeit a smaller pool, but a higher concentration of just great restaurants doing new things. And what I loved about Austin was the underdog mentality. They're pitted against great cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York. I mean, these are legendary culinary hubs that have been legendary for practically as long as they've existed. And Austin sort of like only been around for, at that time, had only been around for like maybe 20 years. Like, And even then it was still kind of developing. So much has happened in the last 10 years in Austin. And so I think that's what excited me. And also it was the closest place that I could just get in my car and pack my bags and go. So it was a little bit of that and, and, and that. Yeah. Did you have a job when you went out there or were you just like, I'm just going to go? It was my first job. So I, I actually wrote a, I was working before I left, before I could like, because I, I was 17 at the time. So like not many people will hire in restaurants because of the whole, there was a big labor issue with like restaurants hiring kids and they were like, this is illegal. So a lot of restaurants wouldn't hire you, at least in my experience, they wouldn't hire you until you were 18. But I was working with like magazines and doing recipe writing. I had been recipe writing for a while before I even went. I had a lot of experience. Like I was trying, yeah, in high school. Wow. In high school, I, I wrote a cookbook and got somehow managed to get it published by a very small publisher. And it was a fun experience. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing for the record. Just let me just put that out there for anyone who finds that book. <laughs> it's available on Amazon for like $200. So I don't know why you would pick that, but if you'd like to see it, there you go. Yeah, so I, I, I was writing a lot of recipes and, and magazines had, had gotten a hold of me and I was doing a little bit of food blogging at the time because, you know, I was a kid, I was just trying anything I could to find a way to make a sustainable source of income and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, after year, a few years of doing that, I think I did that for like four years, like pretty much through all of high school. So I had a pretty strong background in recipe writing and immediately I was like, I just want to be in restaurants. And so turned 18, dipped, went to Austin and... I worked around at a lot of just like blase. I didn't really know. I don't know why, but for some reason I was like, maybe I should start at like a really easy kitchen that I'll just kill it and then like get that experience. I worked at like, God, I, I don't want to name all of them because there's a lot of problems that happen there. But you know, like little ones, like cantinas and stuff, like not the right places. I'm talking like three, four days and I would I was disappear. But it was like, oh, I'm just frying tortilla chips. I think I'd like to go somewhere else. I went to, God, there was one that I went to that, I got fired from that. I don't know if I want to say the name is either, but I, there was one that I worked at for about a year and that was my first like real serious restaurant job. It wasn't quite fine dining, but it was a little bit more relaxed and we were doing food that was, I would call like high-end stoner food in the sense of pork fat mayo and this and that. And we were, you know, these really just really nice little bites that were relatively affordable. It's an open concept kitchen. They have three restaurants now in Austin. You Whoever's listening will be able to figure out what this is. is, but I'm going to, 
Yeah. <laughs> and so I loved that job, but it was like my first real understanding of how, of a serious kitchen that actually gave a shit, like mise en place everything, but like labeling things a certain way. You can never, you have to like cut the tape with scissors. Don't tear the tape, little things like that. That was learning the fine dining way of doing things that I didn't understand at the time. I was a little brutish in the way that I did it. Ended up getting fired from there just because they moved me around and I got put in a position that I think some other people probably wanted to be in. And they were like, why is this fucking green guy here fucking things up left and right? And, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of restaurant politics got me out of there real quick. Bounced around for a little bit. And then eventually I was like, you know what? To me, I loved Uchi, went to Uchi. And that was like, once I got there, I was like, I really want to be here. They had no availability. I worked for free for three, two, two or three months almost. And I had just enough money to pay rent to do that. And my fiance, who's now my fiance, would help me pay for rent. And so I could do that. And I don't know how she managed to do that, but she did. She would like lie to her mom. To, hey, I need a couple few hundred bucks for nails or whatever. <laughs> did you meet her in Austin or did you go to Austin with her? So she went to San Marcos. I, I met her at like a party in San Marcos. I would trek out to San Marcos for what's the word I would use? Debauchery. That's where people go for debauchery when you're, well, maybe 19 in Austin. And I met her there and uh, we hit it off. We've been together for like six years now, which is pretty cool. But yeah, so I went to, went to Uchi, loved it, loved the systems. I loved that they were so dedicated to just letting people be themselves, being patient. And it allowed me to really fall into my own and really explode my skill set that I had spent so long. And it made me realize that my mentality in food is very closely aligned with finer dining than it is anything else. Just to, like the way they did things, I was like, yeah, this all makes sense. This is how I've always been doing it. I've always paid attention to this stuff. I and mean, they taught me the systems and you know, been in love with them ever since, basically. That's really interesting because I, f- I feel like that has to start at the top with like Tyson Cole. And it's interesting how you talk about them because I, I feel you highlight Uchiko a lot in research I've done about you, but there's a reason why, you know? Yeah, 100%. It also also give a shout out to people may not know the name, but his name's Jack Yoss, and he's basically running the direction of culinary program there. He's huge, but you know it also comes from him too. He really cares a lot about the people that work there. But what is most amazing is he really cares about the culture, uh, restaurant culture, and and making it just an environment where everyone's talking about like how can we improve, how can we be better. This is good, but how can it be better? And like you're struggling, how can I help you? What do you need help with? Oftentimes on on the line, as you know, you're behind on prep. It's like, yeah, nice work, numb nuts, good luck. And that happens too everywhere. But like, I love that it was more nourishing and they would always set aside time to sit down with you and talk about where you could improve and you could propose ideas on where the menu could improve and anyone can put anything on the menu. Other restaurants I had worked at, it was like, if you get something on the menu, you're God tier. You have to be either a sous chef or like you're a line cook for eight years and then you can put something mm, on the you menu. You remember that first thing you got on the menu there? Oh, man, I don't fully remember. I know my favorite one, but the first thing, well, the first thing I think I got on was a special that I worked on with somebody else because it was my first time. Oh, what was it? There were so many different ones that I've like played with that I've like put my fingers on or like had put my touch on. Like a lot of the plates were collaborated. So it's hard to give you an exact one. I think there was one that I collaborated on that was like a mini, like a lote inspired type thing. I can't even remember what it was. My favorite one that I did was a, a lamb special. And that was a great one. It was like, a, it, we were going to do lamb belly. And then the chefs were like, fuck you, no, we're not prepping lamb belly. And I was like, fair enough, fair enough. And so we went with like, I think we went with lamb neck or something like that. It was sous vide for 48 hours, pressed for another 24, then portioned. 
and then grilled and glazed on the yakitori or well conroe grill technically over bean shotan and it had a uh, these snap peas that were just like very lightly sauteed tossed with piquol lemon juice it had a pistachio duca and then there was this pre- preserved lemon so all in all that plate it was very simple but it took like three months to get everything put together for the plate that lasted one month and then they're like we're done thank you <laughs> but uh, yeah that's cool very cool okay so i gotta ask are you like dicing shallots at Uchiko while daydreaming about mastering Panda Express orange chicken or how does that go? Yeah, I mean, well, honestly, what I was daydreaming about was controlling my own direction. You know, I think as a young line cook, as a young cook in general, you're fighting for what you want, but you never really know what's going to happen, right? And I think anyone who works on the line or in a restaurant can agree with that. And so I was like, I want to be able to control my path. I knew from the get-go that I had a perspective on food that would help the industry, And I was like looking at all these cooking shows and I'm like, this is shit. Like, I don't like a lot of these. Like all the OG ones, respect, love them. I'm happy. I'm glad they were there. They set the precedent. They created this sphere for us. Like Rachel Ray is a great example of someone who really laid bricks for the restaurant industry or rather the entertainment industry with food. But then there's all these like, there's all these like one-offs that like show up and they go away and then people copy paste. And I was so unhappy with that. And I was like, I have so many great ideas. Like I, I, I could really contribute to this and help continue to make food exciting because I want people who don't cook, people who don't think that much about food to be just as excited about it as I am. I don't give a shit if they cook. And that was really the fire starter for it. And so I would daydream about like ways that I could do it. I was like, what if I had a show where I could just show people in a new, fun, creative way how food is exciting. And maybe it's a little bit more aloof because I, in a weird way, don't really care if people cook my food. I just want people to be excited about it. And yeah. That's cool. Very cool. So when did you start thinking about videos or like content like that, social media content? Or I want to say about a year and a half into working at Co, I was like starting to realize that I could go any direction I wanted at that restaurant. And there were I could start fighting for sous chef. I could start going to exec chef. And I was maybe being a little bit neurotic on that. I was like, once I become a sous chef, I'm fucked. I have to stay here for 20 years and I, which is obviously not true, but yes, I started thinking about it around then. And I was like, I'll just do it for fun for a little bit and and I'll do it very intentionally. I'm not just going to like hope something happens. And then after the two year marker, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go all in with this. And I think for about a year while I was working there, I think I slept like four hours a night, every single night, just so that I could make sure that, because I was doing everything, you know, editing, filming and all that. And I was like, just to get consistent videos out. And I was like, I want to see if this is going to work. And I'm not fucking Mm, around. Interesting. What was the first video you did? It was when I opened the cabinet for the first time. I was like, this needs like a different intro. And I opened the cabinet. Now, if you go through my back catalog, whichever one I opened for the first, the cabinet for the first time was the first episode, but I'm not sure I remember. Was it ramen or something? The very first one's really bad. Can you talk a little bit? So let's get into that world. I'm not going to ask you if you have a favorite, but I am curious about like the creative process of that because I'm not going to tell you what I think and what I like people who think they're going to be you tomorrow, but talk to me about the creative process of what you do. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a bit of an, I don't know what word I want to use other than like a bit of an ethereal process, if that makes sense. Well, for one, I don't think anyone can replicate it. No one can. What someone can do is learn what they like and learn what they think is creative and exciting. That is what makes anything special. But yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. I don't wait for ideas to come to me. I fight for them constantly. I think good chefs do that too, right? When they're creating dishes, it's not like they're like, oh, I'm going to wait until I 
I want to do something with duck, but I don't know what it is. I'm just going to wait. No, they fucking pull the duck out. They score it and they're like, sear it. Mm, no, don't want it seared. I'm going to sous vide it. Mm, don't want it sous vide. You know what? I'm going to smoke it. Ah, I like it smoked. You know what? Actually, let's do a duck pastrami. Done. All right. And then there you go. New special on the menu, right? You fight for it. And so there's like this constant endless flow of ideas out of my brain that I just write them all down and we knock them out one by one, plot them out on the calendar. We have a 10 person team now that I've built basically from the ground up and they're all incredible. Vikram is my director and he's like my right hand man. He started out as just an editor, but now he's like, I don't like, he is like literally the other half of my business and he gets paid accordingly as well. But he's amazing. He's really good. And, and we've really been blessed to find some really great workers that aren't just workers, but they're like, it feels like a, a synchronized group of people who really care about one direction. So timeline from like idea to hitting publish, does that vary? I mean, I'm sure it varies, but... Yeah, it does vary. Well, we, we're at a point where we basically plan everything two months out almost, and we're filmed always a full month out. So we plan two months out, we get it on the board. I still write all of my recipes from scratch. And if it's a recipe that like is more culturally inclined, oftentimes I'll do, like a lot of times people are like, oh, how do you come up with a recipe about like a culture? Like your recipes are so accurate because A, I've worked with a lot of chefs from those cultures and I understand what the technique looks like and I've made those things. And then the other thing is I do a lot of extensive research to make sure that my assumptions are correct. I never will overstep or, or do anything in that regard. And then so anyway, run through the recipe production. I'll, I either I'll write the idea all the way out or I'll have Vikram help. And then we plan it. It's in the calendar. We shoot it. And then it, we get it sent it off to our staff editors. They edit it. We review it. And once we are at a place where it is good, we'll then schedule the upload. And that could be scheduled anywhere from a day before to weeks before. If it's like a brand related thing, it always has to be weeks before. And then the video gets published and we start pushing it and that's pretty much the, the lifetime of a video. The, the process in terms of like, I'm sure people are wondering like, well, how many days does that take if you were to just look at one video? I would say anywhere from three to five days of constant work, but that's obviously spread out. Got it. And so do you pay attention to likes and number of views and, and that stuff? To an extent, I do. I used to really obsess over it and you hear this a lot with anybody in the creative space. You kind of obsess over it and then you reach a point where one of two things will happen to you. You'll over-obsess and literally kill yourself. Sorry, not literally. When I say kill yourself, I mean like creatively, not physically. Like you'll, you'll be done, basically, which is not good. Or you'll overanalyze and it just like you can't come up with anything. And so what I've learned is like everything is kind of subjective and most people are wrong. And at the end of the day, if you're the one making it, you're the alpha and omega of any creative decision that should happen. So I pay attention to it only so that I can provide more value. Because that's my objective. My objective is how can I help you? How can I provide you value? And how can I do it for free as much as possible? Aside from like if I release a book or merch, which is totally not required for you to get all the information I put out, my best secrets, stuff that's taken me years to learn, stuff that I've had copper pans thrown at my head for because I did wrong the first time for free. And that's the goal. Speaking of value, you want to deliver as much value as possible to people, as you just said. Like I know what that means. Like I I understand that, like from a comprehension standpoint, but explain that. It's a good, it's a good question. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to like a producer of ours on it because you have a massive following and a lot of people that have a massive following are just entertaining and like, that's it. But as I watch more and more of your videos, well, when I started to watch more and more of your videos, I'm like, oh shit, like this guy wants to like teach people things. Like he's not just 
you know, doing a gimmick of I can make orange chicken faster, you know? Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Well, it's the same thing with movies, right? Like there can be an incredible movie that maybe the inspiration for the director was he wanted the takeaway to be always look after your kids or whatever the takeaway is, right? But it's a three hour film of pure entertainment and laughing and crying and da da da, da right? There was a reason that the film was made and they're using entertainment as a vessel. And I'm naturally just a dipshit. And so I'm like, well, let me just turn that on. That's just who I am. I mean, obviously I'm very put together now, but like if you were in the kitchen while we were recording, you would realize that I'm much worse in person than I am. Camera is subdued, but I was always the guy in the kitchen that the chefs would be like, Josh, we know that you can work and talk, but you're distracting everyone else. Would you please shut the fuck up? That was me and still is. So I, I think that what to me providing value is not getting on a soapbox and trying to get people to see it, your perspective and not trying to force people to understand it your way. Instead, it's just like, hey, let's have fun. The thing that I do is food. And so like, you're going to watch that and you're going to have a really good time doing it. And if you pick something up along the way, great. But if not, I also don't care. And you'll probably walk away feeling good after watching one of my videos or feeling silly. Or maybe you'll hate me and be like, that guy's really annoying. One way or another, you obtained something and walked away with it, whether you realized it or not. That's funny. I, I have your book. And my brother was over the other day. And before I knew it, his head was like face down in your book. And he like loves to cook. I'm like, just check it out. Like, let me know what you think. I think you like this guy. And he was sitting there like fucking cracking up. He's like, dude, look at this recipe. Chicken breast that actually tastes good. I was like, yeah, I know. He's like, no, no, that's what it's called. I was like, yeah, I know. He's like, that's great. I got to cook it. <laughs> that's great. I love that. That's amazing. What's the most challenging thing that you tried to make? It was cookies, I feel like, or they took you the most amount of time? Is Well, that, there's a number of things. The funny thing is, it's almost like the more difficult and involved a recipe is, the better. I almost always get it right the first try. As silly as that sounds, maybe it's the pressure of all the other elements that does that. But I would say the hardest, most annoying thing that I can remember from the last three years would probably be, and it's really going to sound stupid, Japanese souffle pancakes. Such an obnoxious recipe. It's not, you know how like whenever you're making a traditional souffle, you never expose it to the air and it's got to be, you don't move it. It needs to bake its time and then you can when it's set, otherwise it'll fall. Now, Japanese souffle pancakes are exposed to the air the whole fucking time. So how the hell are you supposed to do that? And so it kind of like went against the nature of everything I learned about souffle making. And I was like, what the hell? It took, dude, we filmed it. It took us three days of filming to get it so right. It was that like funny for you? Would you get a laugh out of it? Were you pissed off or like it was what it was? I would love to say that I laugh when things don't turn out, but I'll be honest. I think it's so infrequent that it is extremely infuriating for me where I'm like, why don't I get this? And I want to like pound the idea in my head. Like I can do this. What is going on? So it's definitely frustrating, honestly. But there are times where I can laugh it off depending on how bad. If it's just royally fucked, then I'll laugh it off. But if it's like a small thing where I'm, I can't quite figure it out, I can get pretty frustrated at it sometimes. Love that. So this other quote of yours, go in with the idea that you're going to fuck up and just be okay with it. It's a part of life. When you ride a bike, you fall over. It's the same concept with cooking. I don't understand how people can go through these incredible life obstacles, but not be able to cook a fucking chicken. You can do it. You've been through worse. Just chomp down and get it done. Yes. I should take my own advice sometimes. <laughs> but okay. So when it comes to your work and you do hit when you hit an obstacle, how do you overcome it? This may be two parts. This may be like, well, you kind of hit upon like food or recipe related or just like work. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, and, and for the record, also, another thing to, to note on that quote is like, I'm also saying that to people who just simply don't do it, right? Like, even if I get frustrated, that doesn't 
stop me from getting it done. I figured the souffle pancake out in three days. Like, and this is something that I couldn't figure out what was wrong. It took me three days, I got it, which I think kind of answers the question. But like, just as a sidestep, th- that's just more of a reminder of like, if you are stopping yourself before you start, that's what you need to think. But to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I think that I'm very, anytime I do anything, I'm just very bullish about getting it done. If I want to get something done, whatever it is, a long-term goal or getting a recipe done, I will literally hammer that shit over and over until it is done. And then more, you know, after I got the souffle pancake right, I made it like, I think I made it seven days in a row after that to make sure that my method was correct. And then I officiated the recipe. So it's like uh, you slap it around a little bit and slap it around a little more. That's funny. All right. Book. I mentioned this in your intro, your book, An Unapologetic Cookbook, became the number one bestseller of all books on Amazon in less than three hours. What the fuck? Like, why do you think this book is so popular? I've thought about this and I think there's never one answer, right? As you know, like, so I think that there's a multitude of reasons. For one, I think that A, it was long, this is a big one, long anticipation. People have been asking for it for a long time. I think that out of anybody on the entire, and and this is with respect to, to most of my peers. So if just putting that out there, there's a lot of people I respect in the space and if you're listening, you know who the fuck you are because I talk to you and we shout you out all the time. But most people in the space will never ever come close to my ability in the sense of they just haven't actually gone through the motions. These are just home cooks. And I think I was a bit of a fresh, uh, a breath of fresh air for that community of viewers when they go, oh shit, this guy actually worked in restaurants and he's entertaining. Fucking finally. And so they, they wanted to support my book. And that was like a big one. That's kind of what I took after just DMs that I've read, emails that I've read, and just hearing from chefs that are like, hey, I appreciate you mentioning this, by the way, and shouting us out in this way. It's just like the representation and all those kinds of things, I feel like is why. And yeah. Can you explain the book for everyone? Yes. And I should, because if you look at the first three uh, reviews on Amazon, you'll note that they did not get it. So this book is not really for just, if, if you're an advanced home cook and you've done it for a long time, this book isn't necessarily for you. Although there are recipes in here that will challenge you. This book is for everybody in the sense of anyone who picks up this book, if they actually cook through it, Canon will start at the beginning, get to the end, and have a proficient set of skills that will provide you the ability to be an intuitive cook. And by that, I mean you can open up your fridge and go, what do I got? And make something delicious out of it. And that's really the purpose of the book. We kind of ran through, basically, it forces you to cook everything from scratch. There's no packaged anything in it. Nothing is built out of speed necessity. It's all built out of how can we apply various techniques that are both simple and difficult in one book and make it sort of chronological as possible. You know, it starts with really basic sauces, like how to make ketchup. But then there's also a recipe for bread that takes 72 hours of of fermentation time. And so it really runs the whole gamut, I would say. So cool. I'm excited to dig further into it. I'm curious about the chicken breast, even though I know how to cook a chicken breast. I'm curious. I saw the ricotta pancakes, you know, some of the homey foods. Yeah. And I mean, you come from a background too, like some of this stuff you're going to eat and you'll be like, oh, I already knew about this. But the the point, like, so for example, the chicken breast, that's an experience for the reader who's never done it before. I think it, I think that recipe is either, I can't remember if it's sous vide or not. It might be, or I suggest doing sous vide, but I talk about the importance of temperature and technique because chicken breast, in my opinion, is one of the most difficult meats to cook properly, period. You have to cook it just until being done, but you can't overcook it. And you've got like a couple degrees of overcook. I mean, it is hard to cook chicken breast. And yet America has gone, this is the meat of the country. 
And it's like, how has this happened? And so- it's so funny and so true. And so that, that's basically the purpose of the recipe is like if somebody's never cooked a chicken breast before or they have and it's always dry and they make that and they go, oh, this is some filet mignon type shit. Oh my God. But not medium rare. But you get what I mean. Like it's just like tender and juicy and you're like, I didn't know chicken breast could be this desirable. And that's what it's supposed yeah. to do. Well, look, I know how to make pancakes. I made a hundred recipes, but I feel like I'm still on the search for like the good pancake recipe. Am I the only one that thinks that all pancake recipes, no matter how much you change their parameters, are somehow so identical? Yeah, for the most part. It, it, and similarly, like I made your orange chicken sauce two nights ago, by the way. It was, yeah, oh, I happened, I randomly had all those ingredients, which none of them were like so far fetched, but it was freaking delicious. And I joke with my brother because he's always searching for like the best sesame chicken. And he's like, no, oh, this one's not good. No, it's not good. I was like, ah, I don't think you like sesame chicken, dude. Because like you've had it like a hundred <laughs> times, but like none of them are ever good. Like, what do you, have you had a good one? What are you looking for? It, I love that. I also have that with certain foods where I'm like, God, this looks so good, but yeah. I hate it. <laughs> It just looks good. Look at all that sauce and the glaze and the, but then you eat and you're like, I don't like it, but yeah. I want to. <laughs> all right. Giving back social impact. It's a big part of this podcast. It's one of the main reasons why we started it because I know that chefs are way more than a photo that you take of a dish in their restaurant and post on Instagram. As you probably know, chefs can do a different fundraiser every freaking night of the week and get asked to donate a dinner and this to charity and come and cook at someone's house and all that's well and good because they have the ability to do that ish. But they're more than that like what they do. So we wanted to highlight that. So I guess I want to jump into that with you into either some of the organizations that you're fond of that you support, or maybe we just start with like, what it does giving back mean to you? Yeah, I mean, well, I think you hit the nail on the head is like, I feel like let's like, let's look at the subject of chefs in their restaurants, right? I feel like chefs are conduits of the communities that they sit down in. And they do a lot of things aside from make food, right? They host conversations that change people's careers. They make food that maybe somebody has a bad day and they walk in and they decide, you know what, I'm gonna have a better day after this. They help facilitate a community and organize just having a coalition of people that all live in the same area, a place where you can come together, right? We don't have that as much anymore in today's society, right? Like back in the day before phones and stuff like that, people would get together to get to know one another and all that. And there were these meeting grounds. And really, the only one left that actually does that regularly in mass are restaurants. And yet they suffer and have suffered for a very long time and especially suffered during with the pandemic and everything. So to me, I feel like we should protect those that are helping facilitate what makes a society wholesome and good and helpful for people. And so to me, I would like to, you know, shine the light on anybody or any company, rather, anybody that's facilitating, you know, supporting the restaurant industry through this time. Southern Smoke is a big one for me because that's local to me. And so I would like to shine the light on Southern Smoke. And I have before I've done a few events with them involved. So that would be my choice. If there's anyone that wants to support restaurants, you can go to southernsmoke.org and find out how to support by donating. And uh, it, it's going to help I don't know all the details and where it helps, but I know that it helps farmers, winemakers, dishwashers, servers. I mean, we're talking across the board and it really has anything to do, whether it's from the health crisis or storm damage. Think about the times that a restaurant burns down and the whole community is like, oh, damn, that sucks. Imagine if all the people that ate there just submitted five bucks, you'd be able to rebuild the restaurant, but nobody wants to do that. Yeah. 
That's really interesting. And we'll link to Southern Smoke in the episode notes and on our website as well. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I'm familiar with Southern Smoke. And it's an interesting st- Wasn't it started by Chris Shepard and his restaurant group to like help fund? There was like a cook. I feel like that got sick. Am I making that up? I feel like there's some story along those lines. And then it's morphed into a, a bigger beast. Yeah, you're right. I actually didn't know it was started by Chris Shepard until you told me earlier. And I was like, oh, I did not know that was Chris Shepard. He's a king. Great, great guy. guy. Great cook. And talk about a guy who loves and eats life. I think you guys share a similar point of view on ketchup, by the way. Do we? Yeah, I think Heinz and he just like doesn't want to mess with homemade ketchup. He's like, why mess with it? Yeah. 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 I also notate that in my ketchup recipe as well, where I'm like, this is not a substitute for ketchup. This is just a recipe for it. (laughs) You know, but yeah, I really like Chris Shepard. I think I'm supposed to be talking to him at some point for the first time. So I'm excited and nervous at the nice. same time. That's great. I love it. Before we kick it over to a speed round, I do want to mention, I mention this often, but you know, it never gets old in terms of giving, give what you can, whether it's your voice, whether it's your money, whether it's your time, it all helps. People think they have to have deep pockets and all the money in the world, but you don't. You could volunteer for 30 minutes a month or give a dollar or do a social media post, whether you have a hundred followers or a million, like someone sees that and you may be opening someone's eyes to something and making a difference for someone in the long run. So thank you for shining a light on Southern Smoke and all that work. All right, let's do speed round. What did you have for dinner last night? What did I have for dinner last night? Oh, it was very boring. I had like chicken kebabs and hummus. And that was pretty much it. One of my most boring meals of the month, for sure. <laughs> What'd you have for dinner two nights ago? No, I'm just kidding. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Ooh, toasted garlic. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Blue cheese. What pisses you off in the kitchen? Disorganization. And what makes you happy in the kitchen? Organization. (laughs) (laughs) Name a go-to snack in your pantry. Ooh. You know what's weird? Dates and peanut butter. Very good. It's nice. I'm going to hit that up. Nice. I'm really grotesque about it. You know, I'll just dunk that thing in there. It's fine. It's fine. Nobody knows. No, I'm going to do that probably within minutes after we end this. Summer grilling season is upon us. What do you put between your buns? Probably I would... I've really been into making my own hot dogs. I like curing and smoking them myself. You want to, if you're going to do it, just be sure not to use, obviously, uh, traditional pork casings because they're too big. Uh, you need to use sheep so that they're small and skinny like a proper hot dog, but really Love nice. It. Love it. All right, closing it out here. You've deciphered many different recipes from in and out secret sauce to Popeye's, Chick-fil-A, et cetera, et cetera. Have any of these places like reached out to you after? The only one. They, I know they know about me. And if you're listening, fucking In-N-Out. And by the way, shout out to In-N-Out. I love In-N-Out. But uh, their fries suck. And if any of the representatives are listening to this, I know you know. Okay? Just stop being scared. It's fine. Just call me. No. So only one of them, uh, actually, Whataburk, has been a great sport. They actually follow me. Ever since I did the first one a while back, they followed me. And I'll be honest with you, I trashed them. I feel kind of bad. And I do like Whataburger to an extent. So maybe that maybe they know that. But uh, yeah, they've been very good sports. They hit any the last time I did one, they DM'd me and they're like, please don't do it to us again. And they said that on DM and I was like, that's kind of cool that they're so open. You know, shout out to them for being good sports. They know it's in good fun. I like it. I like that. A journalist asked you if there's a chef you want to cook for. Keep me honest here. You mentioned Gordon Ramsay and Renee Redzepi, two very different chefs. In the same article, you talked about opening your first restaurant. So this is a two-parter, two-part question. Other than Chef Gordon Ramsay and Chef Rene Redzepi, who else would you invite if you had three more seats at the table? Oh, man, that's tough. That is tough. I would invite other, sorry, other chefs or just like celebrities or what? Anybody. 
Well, I'd have to invite my parents. Does that take up two seats? Unless they want to share. They could share a seat. Okay. Well, I'd definitely invite my parents. And if it doesn't take up seats, then my parents. And then I would invite Robert Downey Jr. just because I would love to see his reaction. I would invite... Oh, jeez. There's so many. God, I, I'm going to forget somebody. So it's not my ultimatum list, but Jack Black. And uh, man, I don't know why this is stumping me so much. Normally, I have an answer right away. I guess The Rock, just because... Jack Black, The Rock, and uh, and Robert Downey Jr.—they're all kind of like slightly funny people, so I know that it would be it would be a fun time. That's a good trio right there. I like that. Follow up here, part two. What would you serve? Ooh, that's see. Th- this is where things get rough. Part of me wants to go simple. Part of me wants to go fancy. I think I would probably do a little mix. You know, I think I would do like just a big, huge, gigantic, unnecessarily large steak. Actually, better yet, no, I wouldn't do a steak. I would do huge short ribs, like the entire plate, take the whole plate, sous vide it for 72 hours, press it, chill it, grill it, glaze it, serve that as is with, you know, some different accoutrement, maybe some veg. And then for something fancy, I'd probably do like I I'd probably do like a, a, a glazed Peking duck with like a, all the accoutrement, you know, the mandarin pancakes and all that other stuff. Yeah. I like it. Very meat heavy. Yeah. Sounds like it, but it sounds good, man. Josh, this was fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. Appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for talking to us. I sincerely love your point of view. I'm excited to dig further into the book and keep putting out that intentional and valuable content. Love it. I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Really, I appreciate it. This was a lot of fun, man. I had the really good questions, honestly. Like, I, I appreciate the intentionality. A lot of the time when I get questions, it's nice to get questions from somebody who really knows what they're talking about. I feel like half the time I get questions, but like a lot of time I get questions that are just lame man and these were really good so i really appreciate that i appreciate it thank you thanks again to chef joshua weissman find more on him at joshuaweissman.com to learn more about southern smoke go to southernsmoke.org we'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondtheplatepodcast.com find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media at on cappy's plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com beyond the plate is also on social at bt plate podcast This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mee. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.